This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are going to talk with our lead author, Dr. Raymond Razanabli from the Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Department. Dr. Razanabli is a professor of medicine, vice chair of infectious disease, chair of community internal medicine, practice and also program director of our infectious disease program at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. The topic of discussion today, it's a review article on several of the new updates on COVID-19, which is being published in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. Welcome, Raymond. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Raymond, since we came to know about COVID in December 31st, 2019, Lots have changed. The name has evolved into COVID and we didn't know a lot about it. But even then, looks like January, February, those information which we had is very old. What are the new signs and symptoms that have evolved over the last three, four months which you have put in your article? So let's put this into perspective. So now that we've done a lot of testing and uh, the pandemic has really spread around the world, we've learned more about the fact that probably up to about 50% of patients who get this infection are without any symptoms. So they are asymptomatic. The uh, key to that is they are spreaders too. So this is facilitating the spread of the infection. Among those who develop symptoms, those are the ones that we call COVID-19 or coronavirus disease 19. And the bulk of them, about 80%, also have mild disease, wherein they only get, you know, respiratory cough, usually dry, fever, fatigue. And then about 20% will develop onto progress respiratory distress. Some will go on to develop respiratory distress syndrome and multi-organ failure in a minority of patients. Since then, we've learned that there's also a high proportion of patients who have impaired sense of taste, impaired sense of smell, about 10% of people will also develop some sort of a gastrointestinal symptoms with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea as predominant manifestations. And then lately, there's this COVID toes. There's this increased risk of thrombosis. There's this increased risk of myocardial injury. All of these are uh, being played out now as we learn more about this uh, disease and this virus. So Raymond, the way I hear you right, the 50% of us, could be asymptomatic without any symptoms. We don't have a label of COVID-19. We are not going to get tested and we are walking around spreading the disease. Is that correct? That is correct. That's a very scary thought. Um, and that's the reason why, you know, the policies about masking, uh, the policies about social distancing uh, are, are helping to kind of curb that uh, uh, pandemic. That is excellent. A lot has happened, a lot of learning has happened regarding the testing, the molecular testing and the antibody testing. What is the current state of information that you have summarized in your article regarding this testing? So there are two different types of tests that we use clinically. The first one that is used in the diagnosis for acute care is the so-called nucleic acid testing or PCR test as commonly referred to. And there are various assays available out there. 
Some are commercially available, some are laboratory developed, and many of them are functioning or are being offered as an emergency use authorization from the FDA. The principle of this is it detects the viral nucleic acid in a clinical sample, usually a respiratory specimen such as a nasopharyngeal swab, autopharyngeal swab, or sputum or lower respiratory tract specimens. And it detects the viral nucleic acid in that sample and it basically reports it out as either positive or negative. Now, everybody's asking about sensitivity, right? So uh, the test, when it is offered, it's been tested in terms of its analytic sensitivity and performance, and they're supposed to detect the virus, and they're not supposed to detect other viruses. So that is the laboratory aspect of that. But the bigger question uh, for you and me is the clinical sensitivity. How does this function in the clinical setting? And that's been difficult to really assess, and each assay probably performs differently from other assays because all of these assays are currently not standardized. And yep. it also depends too on the stage of the illness. For example, early on, the nasopharyngeal swab may be a useful uh, sample, but later on, as the disease progresses to, for example, pneumonia, you may have a better sensitivity when you're using a lower respiratory tract sample in cases like so there is a lot of complexity. And when does this antibody start forming in the body? After how many days? Thanks for pointing that out. It usually happens at around the second week, maybe day eight, day nine, day 10. That's when we start seeing immunoglobulin against coronavirus. And that's basically the basis for the serologic assays too. Uh, so these are the assays that detect the antibody against the coronavirus. Our studies have shown that by day 14, patients who have been infected should have developed some sort of an antibody uh, to, to the virus. So, and that is uh, the, the basis for the coronavirus serology assay. Now, having said that, there are multiple assays out there available and everybody or every assay has different uh, performance characteristics. So you should keep that in mind as well. 20% you mentioned of the patients who are COVID-19 are getting admitted in the hospital, either in the infectious disease ward or in the ICU critical care. How do we predict the risk? Have we learned something about the risk and progression to the patients who will require admissions? So usually the risk factors that increases the risk for progression to a more moderate to severe illness requiring hospitalization are age, usually individuals older than 65, although we've seen patients coming in also at a younger age group. The other one that's a big risk factor is diabetes. A high proportion of patients admitted to, to the hospital are diabetic. Many are hypertensive. Many have underlying cardiac comorbidities. Many have underlying uh, pulmonary problems such as COPD. There was even reported that maybe asthma also increases the risk. Uh, individuals who have compromised immune system, such as those on immunosuppressive therapy, transplant recipients are also at increased risk. And uh, those that are smoking also are at increased risk as well. And finally, an increased BMI. A BMI of over 35 or 40 has been one of the characteristics that predicts possible uh, progression to a more severe disease uh, that requires hospitalization. Now with me, when those people come in, is there any other clue that I 
look at. And when I evaluate patients like this, I look at the lymphocyte count. Usually lymphopenia or declining lymphocyte count, which is available in urolatine CBC, is a marker that maybe this is a patient at high risk of progression or being transferred to the ICU. Another one that's also being trended is uh, inflammatory markers such as C-reactive protein and ferritin. If they are trending up, then that's also a marker that you should watch for these patients carefully because they may suddenly deteriorate. What about D-dimer? I've seen D-dimers and ferritin. to be regular? Correct. Correct. Many patients who are in the ICU have markedly elevated D-dimers, and we've seen cases as high as 100,000. And uh, this is also a marker of potential risk for thrombosis as well. So everybody that comes in to the hospital actually should have a baseline ferritin and D-dimer evaluations so providers can be better guided as to what to look for. There's now this recommendation to actually put patients on BTE prophylaxis to prevent thrombosis, for example, if there is no contraindication. Although randomized controlled trials to demonstrate that this is effective or not, uh, has not been done, but clinical practice guidance have recommended the use of low molecular weight heparin, for example, in patients admitted for severe or critical COVID. The fear which everybody has right now is the condition called hyperinflation syndrome, mm -hmm. which is there with COVID. Can you tell how common is it and how are we dealing with the hyperinflation syndrome at the present moment? So this is a subgroup of patients usually who are admitted to the intensive care unit. If you carve out all the patients who develop COVID disease, this proportion of hyperinflammation probably occurs in roughly about 5% of patients who develop coronavirus disease. And they have high fevers, they have hemodynamic instability, they have respiratory distress, many of them develop ARDS. Some of them will go on to develop multi-organ failure syndrome characterized by rise in serum creatinine, as well as transaminases uh, uh, being elevated. Markers are basically really high levels of C-reactive protein. If you have an assay that measures IL-6, they are through the roof, uh, elevated levels of ferritin, as well as D-dimers. And uh, these are the people that are critical, that needs intensive care support. There is a parallel in kids. More uh, recently, you may have heard about the multisystemic inflammatory syndrome in our pediatric population. So this is a Kawasaki-like uh, inflammatory uh, illness that happens in uh, children and adolescents, although it's been also reported uh, a few in adults, uh, wherein they have organ dysfunction, hepatitis, carditis, they have fevers, they have mucositis. In contrast to the one that happens in adults, though, this appears to be a later complication in children at least based on the reports that's been uh, out there. Now, one of the things which has also come up, which we don't see too many in infectious disease, general infectious diseases, cardiac complications. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk on the cardiac complications in COVID. Can you let us yes. know what they are right now? So three things there. First one, patients who develop coronavirus disease, particularly severe coronavirus disease, have cardiac comorbidity as a risk factor to start right? So they are at increased risk. The second one is uh, studies have shown uh, originally from China that 
20 to 40 percent of patients with coronavirus disease have elevated troponins. So that increases basically discussion that maybe there is coronavirus associated myocardial injury, whether this is related to the virus itself or it is related to the respiratory failure that happens in this patient is something that is being debated. And then the third one is sometimes we use drugs that prolong uh, the QT interval or arrhythmogenic, and that also complicates the uh, cardiac complications in these patients. The recommendation right now is patients who are critical enough to be admitted to the intensive care unit should at least have a troponin uh, measure to look for possible myocardial injury. There has also been reported cases of uh, myocarditis related to COVID, but these are sporadic uh, and not based on large studies. So Raymond, my next question to you is the role of co-infection in hospitalized patients. Number one, how do you diagnose a co-infection and how do you treat it? Many patients early on during the pandemic, it coincided at the time that influenza was still circulating, right? So this was around December and January. So during that time, there are reports of co-infection between coronavirus disease as well as influenza. But that has died down. And what is currently playing out right now is patient comes in with sort of pneumonia and patients are also started on antibiotics against pneumonia. But we learned that those are not common. And generally when we see them, uh, because the characteristics are so typical, the exposure is well identified, as well as the chest X-ray findings are typical of coronavirus disease. We as infectious disease physicians, basically our stewardship hat says stop the antimicrobial therapy. But then you have to uh, note that patients who stay in the hospital for long periods of time as a result of COVID, particularly those who are in the critical care unit, they are at risk for hospital acquired infections. So patients who are given immunomodulators, for example, they are at risk for bacterial superinfection or fungal superinfection. So every patient should be monitored daily uh, to look for those. Maybe an increasing white count is a clue. Maybe hemodynamic instability is a clue. Maybe changes in the uh, radiographs is a, is a clue to the onset of these infections. Uh, and then use the usual uh, culture techniques to diagnose them. I read in your paper, you mentioned about some atypical features in the x-rays too, which mm -hmm. can give us, give us a clue. So what is really becoming apparent in COVID-19 is unlike any other diseases, pneumonia, five days of antibiotic and all the stewardship, which we have learned, we are redefining all those parameters of when to treat, how to treat, how long to treat. And it's also affecting so many factors are being affected I'm not sure of any other infectious disease which have come up of recent where we had to deal with a whole storm of events. That is correct. So this is really uh, a teamwork approach wherein, you know, it's not relying only on ID. We need partners everywhere, hospital medicine, pulmonary, critical care, emergency room uh, physicians, uh, the laboratory uh, needs to also uh, bring up new methods to, to uh, diagnose this. Nursing, pharmacy, all of these people are actually playing part in our effort to kind of combat this, this new, new illness. And hopefully the structure that we've developed uh, will linger on uh, to kind of help us face the future. Hopefully there's not going to be another pandemic coming, but you, you'll never know, right?
So I, I go back to the next important thing about the treatment. Now you all already mentioned that 50% of us who are asymptomatic, we have absolutely no symptoms, we are spreaders, use the mask, social distancing, hand washing, everything you can keep to spread the infection. Then the other 50% out of that 80% are still having minor symptoms, probably home quarantine, masking and social distancing and all those things, they have to continue. Then they're coming in the hospital. Now, there are different things which in the press, we are getting confused as to antiviral treatments and then there are anti-inflammatory treatments and then how to manage this hyperinflation syndrome. Can you just run the course of what is evidence-based and what do we know about some of these treatments which are currently available for COVID-19? For us to dissect that, we need to kind of look at the phases of coronavirus disease. There are so-called three phases of this illness. There's the viremic phase, which usually lasts about five to seven days. And this is when the patients only have maybe fevers, fatigue, dry cough. The second phase is pneumonia phase, wherein they get respiratory distress, um, they get short of breath, they become hypoxemic, and the chest X-ray shows basically the findings of pneumonia with bilateral ground glass opacities, usually at the periphery and at the base. And then there's the third phase, which is the hyperinflammation phase, and that usually happens at around second week of the illness or so. Depending on where the patient is at when you see them, they may benefit from antivirals alone, they may benefit from supportive care alone, or they may also need an immunomodulator. Now let's talk about the antivirals, which is probably most effective when you give it during the first week, during the viremic and pneumonia phase. The two ones that are most famous in the media is hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. Let's talk first about remdesivir. Remdesivir is an RNA polymerase inhibitor. It's a nucleoside analog that basically serves as a substrate for the polymerase. And when remdesivir as the analog gets incorporated during the viral replication, the replication stops. So this was a drug that was previously developed for Ebola. It failed, but it was resurrected because in vitro studies shows that it should work against coronavirus. And indeed, it was studied in a compassionate use trial. Roughly about 60 patients were enrolled. And the outcomes of that is that it may be effective. But the problem with the trial is it's compassionate use. It does not have a control, right? But because of that, it went on into a randomized controlled placebo slash standard of care uh, comparison sponsored by the NIH. And that's the one that was reported a few weeks back wherein they enrolled a thousand patients and they were randomized either to just standard of care alone versus 10 days of intravenous remdesivir. And the results showed that those individuals who received remdesivir have a significantly faster time to clinical recovery by about four days. And as a result of that, the FDA had issued an emergency use authorization for the use of remdesivir in, in coronavirus disease. Since that has been published, and has become available. The uh, sponsor of this drug also performed a study comparing five days versus 10 days of remdesivir. 
and their outcome suggested based on a study of 400 people is five days is good enough. You don't need to go as long as 10 days. And this is really something that is important because we have a limited supply. So if we can treat coronavirus disease with just five days, why extend it to 10 when you can use the next five day supply for other people? That's where we're at. And then there's a bigger trial that we're also uh, waiting for. Uh, the study has been completed also on remdesivir, but the results are not yet out. And this is again in patients with severe coronavirus disease. Currently, uh, remdesivir is available through the states. So the federal government has a stockpile of this acquired from the company, and they are distributing remdesivir to the different states based on the need. And each state will distribute it to their hospitals depending on their protocols as well. The second drug that is controversial is hydroxychloroquine. This is a drug that has been used all over since the start of the pandemic. So there are reports of studies, usually cases and uncontrolled studies originating from China and then it went to Europe, uh, suggesting that maybe it works. There are also studies that show that it does not work. There was even this controversial study that came from France that when you combine it with azithromycin, it works better. And all of those has been debunked. Another one too that is gaining a lot of debate right now is this big study that came out from Lancet uh, about a week or two ago, supposed to be a multinational registry of 167 hospitals across the world. And they show that the use of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin was associated with higher risk of mortality. That has since been re retracted. Uh, because ethical concerns and the authors of those papers have retracted their publication from Lancet. The biggest news during the past week has been the randomized controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine compared to placebo as post-exposure prophylaxis. This is the trial that came from the University of Minnesota and the outcome says it's not associated with significant benefit the incidence of coronavirus disease in patients who are exposed, usually healthcare workers, uh, who receive placebo is the same as the one who receive hydroxychloroquine. So at least we can say based on that well-controlled study that the use of hydroxychloroquine as post-exposure prophylaxis is probably not effective. There are still ongoing studies on primary prophylaxis, and that's the HERO trial, which is the Healthcare Exposure Outcomes Research uh, trial, as well as other investigations done uh, across the world, including the WHO Solidarity trial that still has hydroxychloroquine as part of the investigational drugs. So more to come on that, but it's still a lot of debate with this. And then just to mention two other drugs, Fabipiravir, which is also an RNA, RNA polymerase inhibitor, as well as lopinavir, ratonavir, the Calitra drug for HIV. Studies have shown that they're probably not uh, effective uh, in coronavirus disease. So many institutions have taken Calitra or lopinavir, ratonavir out of their uh, algorithms as, as a result of that study. So once you're beyond this first week, 
you've gone into the inflammatory phase, as you mentioned, the second stage, and you're actually creeping towards the third stage. So you've got pneumonia or you're going to hyperinflammatory stage. What are the options now? All right. So now, as some patients, so this is now just maybe about five to ten percent for you consider this as an option. When they get into this hyperinflammatory stage, characterized by high level of C-reactive protein, high level of IL-6, and they get hemodynamic instability, there are immunomodulators that are available as investigational agents. Some use it off-label. So the cytokine that has been most characterized in hyperinflammatory syndromes related to COVID is interleukin-6 or IL-6. We have IL-6 available in our clinical armamentarium. That's your tozolizumab. So tozolizumab was, was used in China in patients with uh, cytokine storm or hyperinflammatory stage uh, in a small group of 21 patients resulted in markedly declined C-reactive protein within a day or two, as well as marked defervescence, wherein patients basically got rid of their fever episodes within a day or two after receiving tuzolizumab. So that was a bright spot at that time during the pandemic. So as the pandemic spread basically westward to Europe, so this was adapted by the Europeans when the pandemic was uh, happening in, in Europe. There was an Italian experience of 100 patients suggesting that yes, the use of tocilizumab is associated with declining C-reactive protein as well as lower chance of being on the ventilator and, 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 and the like. But the problem with those studies is their single arm, no control. So we don't know whether the improvement with tocilizumab is as a result of the drug, or is it the result of the natural course of the infection? So there are now randomized controlled trials being performed here in the US and nationally comparing IL-6 inhibitors, and there are several of them, but the two one that is most advanced in clinical development is tuzilizumab and cerilumab. The tuzilizumab trial has been completed. We do not yet know the results. And then the cerilumab trial has undergone phase two studies, which show that there's a signal in possibly improvement in patients who are given the drug at the right time. It doesn't work if it's given too early. It doesn't work if it's given too late. So it has to be at the right perfect moment. But then big studies on this are still ongoing. Other than IL-6, there's also trials on IL-1 inhibitor. There's also clinical trials on complement inhibitor. There's also clinical trials on GM-CSF inhibitor, all with the aim of modulating the hyperinflammatory response related to coronavirus disease. Having said that, one should watch for, for secondary infections that may happen, uh, which are potential complications with any of the immunomodulators that we use. What is the best time to give this bridging therapy with convalescent plasma? Uh, is it towards the first six days or towards the later part? When do you think the effect is going to be the best? The anecdotal experience is it's probably best given with, with the plasma is early on during the disease. So it's basically when we see our patients uh, as part of a treatment panel, at one point it was either is this a remdesivir candidate or a plasma candidate. Kind of thing. Kind of depends on the uh, characteristics of patients at that time. But pl plasma is probably best given 
maybe at around early part of the second stage, best before they get intubated, for example. Now, things are going fine. Unlike any disease that I've heard of in the recent past, the criteria for discharge to home, it is becoming so complicated based on the social determinants of health of the individual patient. Yes. If they have a stable family, they yes. go back, they're quarantined. If they're from a nursing home, looks like it's different. If they yes. are from a very poor socioeconomic status, they have to stay the whole course in the hospital. Can you yes. tell uh, what you are undergoing in the hospital, the challenges from the hospital standpoint and from the social standpoint uh, regarding the discharge, which we have never seen happen that frequently and why that if you don't do it right, the readmission rates could be so high and other complications could be so high. That itself looks like going to be a talk on its own. As, as soon as the patients are medically ready to be dismissed, we want to dismiss them, right? But we have to dismiss them from the hospital safely uh, because of the potential possible complications. Like for example, if they come in during the first week of illness, they may do better, you may, you, they may be oxygenating well, but if you look, look at the faces, they may crash during the second week and stuff like that. So when you dismiss patients, they have to have the social structure to make sure that they are monitored even at home. And uh, it, the, the complicating factor for this too is they are still potentially infectious during that time. So you don't want to expose other people in that community or in that home who will be caring for these patients. So there has to be you know, a physical uh, should be okay that they should have a room in the house, they should be separated out from other members, but the other members should be available to basically monitor and care for them during that time. Uh, we also now have devices that measures, you know, blood pressures, pulse oximeter, pulse rates, temperatures uh, through tablets and other devices that can automatically feed back to what we call uh, at Mayo the COVID front line care team that basically are, we are thankful for them because they are helping out in facilitating uh, these efforts. Nursing home is another discussion because it's, it's a group community usually of elderly people that are at high risk for developed COVID. So uh, those facilities should also have the ability to isolate these patients when they get dismissed so as not to cause an outbreak in, in that community. So all of this, again, it's a multidisciplinary collaboration between you know, internal medicine, social work, nursing, pharmacy too helps with that to make sure that uh, drugs that these patients need are, 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 are given uh, with basically advice from ID and how to properly ensure infection control measures in those situations. Even transportation is, is an issue. You just don't ask them to go into a public transport because that will also potentially contaminate that space. So all of these are new for you and me because we used not to do them, right, in, in the past. But with this current pandemic, I think we have to ensure that all of these are uh, done properly in order to help mitigate this uh, surge of infections. You need a good dismissal team, including the primary physician, the nurse, the social worker, and if all the criteria that you mentioned are not met, then you keep the patient in a hospital, maybe not in ICU, but in another ward till they run the whole course, which could go on for two or three or four weeks. That is correct, and that can actually flood the hospital system. 
and again, there was an expectation early on during the start of the pandemic. That's why, you know, social distancing, lockdowns, and all those kinds of things were implemented early on. I think those helped in mitigating that, you know, uptake or surge, at least in our uh, community here in Rochester. I was reading your paper and looks like the amount of uh, protective the uh, gear that you have to wear and all the other complications, even the rehabilitation, the physical rehabilitations of these patients are problematic when they're in ICU. Normal patients in ICU, there's a physical therapist working with them, getting their muscles going right from maybe day one, two or whatever. Here, that is a problem. So we may be discharging patients who are weak, uh, not only from the infection, but their muscles are weak now. Uh, almost like critical care illness because of not using their muscles. And that is correct. And also, if you look back at, this, uh, at, the, at the time of the pandemic, that, you know, we're conserving PPE. In the past, we're, and this is not an issue, you know, uh, uh, the physical therapist can just go in and kind of help improve movement and strength. But as we're conserving uh, many of these precious uh, PPE supplies, we don't do that as often. And uh, sometimes we do our visits virtually, for, for example, uh, just basically communicating with the patients either at home or in the hospital room via phone or via video devices. And there's drawbacks to that. The advantages is it limits potential exposure, but the drawbacks is that communication is not as good as if you're there face to face. So you did bring up a point, which was my next question for the telemedicine, the telemonitoring. We were going on slowly, slowly for years. That all changed COVID time. And the whole world wants to telecommunicate, wants to talk, but what are the right things when you're handing over a script for remote monitoring? What are you telling your physicians, your fellows and the other nurses who are doing remote monitoring? Is there a script they're following? Yes. Yes, there are protocols, uh, script as to you know how the patients are doing, just to make sure that they are stable, that there are no warning symptoms or warning signs that would necessitate a face-to-face. -face. Uh, so all of those are protocolized, particularly in in this scenario, wherein we want our patients to be cared for properly, but we also wanted to limit potential exposure. Uh, when a patient travels from home to, for example, the clinic or the hospital, you know, there are potential exposure points during that time. So as long as it's safe, like let's say, for example, the 80% of patients who are diagnosed with SARS-CoV PCR positivity that have mild illness, they are better cared for at home. And that can be done safely through either uh, telehealth telephone or video, video, video consoles. Uh, and, and that is also being done by our COVID frontline care team. So kudos to them for doing this great work. And if there are warning signs, such as increasing respiratory rate or fever all of a sudden happened. So we have uh, nurses that basically calls the patients and advise them to escalate care to uh, the hospital. So I'm an internal medicine doctor and I've been aware of all the social determinants of health and the health disparity. That's what I deal with. But nothing brought to the forefront as fast as COVID did. 
yes. all the telemonitoring that you're mentioning, some of my patients don't even have a computer in their home. What did health disparities show in the COVID era? Uh, it actually really highlighted it, just like what you said. In one of the recent grand rounds, it was emphasized that actually 30% of patients who got admitted to the Mayo system are non-English speakers. So you have to consider that in providing this telehealth services that there should be a mechanism wherein you can reach out to the minorities and underserved population. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our physicians in, uh, in ID Act or, and partnered with uh, internal medicine uh, have a community outreach program uh, wherein they connected with leaders of the various communities around town in order to educate these communities about the risks of COVID. And me as a treating provider that's part of the COVID uh, treatment panel, uh, I see many of our patients being admitted from minorities. And uh, even our clinical trials, uh, our consent forms are are being translated into various languages so that uh, people can understand uh, for those whose language is uh, other than, than English. And many of the patients, just like what you said, don't even have a computer at home. So uh, the, I believe the uh, COVID frontline care team have devices such as tablets that are being sent to patients who are positive for COVID. And uh, they can, uh, the nurses can instruct on how to use them. And I think that's one of the mechanisms too that's being used in, 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 in fighting this disease. Let me ask a parting question. What do you think is in your circles, the infectious disease expert, what are they talking about the next thing that might show up, the next uh, development in COVID management? Yeah, we we look forward to um, uh, accelerated vaccine development. And I think that's going to be really key in in order to kind of curb the spread of the infection, an effective, protective, vaccine that can be used to uh, limit the spread. And I think that will be uh, the game changer, as, as we call it. We're hoping that will happen soon. Thank you, Dr. Raymond Razanabale, for your excellent talk and giving us all the valuable suggestions, all the uh, treatment trials which you mentioned. I'm very grateful for the time that you spent with us. And I'm sure Our listeners are going to learn a lot from you. We have been talking about the new updates on COVID-19 with Professor Raymond Razanabale. Thank you, uh, Raymond. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you back next week.